Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige on this happy day after Bastille Day. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with Derek Davison, and we are going to jump into the news. So, Derek, there's been a lot going on with Kaliningrad or uh, when Kant was living there, Königsberg. So why don't you tell us why we need to know about Kaliningrad this week? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to say I'm a little irritated with John Bolton, who you may know went on CNN and bragged about planning coups in foreign countries. With all due respect, uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. These are projects he and I worked on together. I'm a little irritated that he's just blabbing them out like this on cable TV. So I just want to categorically say that I I am opposed to to his uh, loose lips, shall we say. Anyway... Let's get into it. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Kaliningrad, the situation in Kaliningrad, I believe, on this program. We talked about the Lithuanian government's decision to ban Russian goods from transiting through Lithuania to get to and from Kaliningrad, which is uh, an exclave. It's entirely separate from the rest of Russia, at least uh, by land. Uh, And so this raised a big red flag for Moscow, which is always mindful of Kaliningrad's vulnerability. Um, You know, the the fact that it could be cut off uh, from the rest of Russia by an EU state. Lithuania, uh, an EU member state. The Lithuanian government at the time said it was its hands were tied, that it had to abide by European Union sanctions that were preventing uh, Russian goods from entering the country and they couldn't make exceptions. Uh, Well, on Wednesday, uh, the European Commission uh, issued new guidelines dealing with the transshipment of goods uh, from Russia to Kaliningrad, blinking a little bit, I think, here to try and avoid what could have been a, a pretty serious escalatory situation in a, in a place in a time when Eastern Europe doesn't need any more of those. So what the commission said was that goods other than military and so-called dual-use goods, uh, which of course are, um, you know, can be used for civilian or military purposes, uh, other than those kind of, t- those two categories, any goods that need to be shipped uh, to Kaliningrad can transit EU territory. There's nothing blocking them. Uh, the commission said that transit should be monitored for potential violations, but otherwise not prohibited. So the Lithuanian government very quickly, uh, I think glad for the chance to to back down here a little bit, uh, announced that it would end uh, this, you know, what, what the Russians have characterized as a blockade effectively. The Russians seem somewhat pleased with this development. They're a little bit, I think, still irritated by these exceptions for military and dual-use goods and by the uh, notion that these transshipments need to be monitored by EU officials. Uh, So they're still not entirely thrilled with what's going on here. But uh, hopefully, uh, as I say, this this kind of ratchets tension down in a in a situation that could have added significantly to uh, the already high tensions between the EU and Russia. So should we expect to see anything as the result of this or is is this situation, as it were, developing? Um, I think it's still developing. I've I've only seen like preliminary reactions from Russia, which, again, as as I said, were 
kind of 50-50. I mean, it's better than, from their perspective, better than what had been, uh, had previously been the situation, but not uh, still, I think, ideal. So uh, we'll have to wait and see how this plays out. But hopefully, you know, hopefully it's it's um, heading on a, a better track than it was a couple of weeks ago. So speaking of hopefully, and speaking of ongoing conflicts, why don't we turn now to Ukraine? And Derek, could you give us an update on the war? Yeah, so there's potentially some good news. Ukrainian, Russian, Turkish, and UN officials met in Istanbul on Wednesday to try to figure out a way to end the blockade of Ukrainian grain to allow shipments through the Black Sea that would bring that grain to market, which could, you know, have some positive impacts in terms of global food prices and positive impacts on countries that are frankly dependent on Ukrainian and Russian grain supplies to to feed their people. The question of how much actually got done at this meeting depends on the answer to that question depends on who you talk to. Uh, Turkish Defense Minister Hulusi Akar sounded a very optimistic assessment, a very optimistic note uh, following discussion, basically insisting that they had reached a deal in, in all but name and that the parties would meet again next week uh, to sign off on on the final agreement and everything was going great. Uh, Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, was a little more circumspect. His assessment was that there's still more technical work that needs to be done before a final arrangement or final agreement can be completed. Uh, it does sound either way like they made some significant progress. Uh, the deal would establish export lanes through the Black Sea that would, I think, be monitored essentially or enforced by uh, Turkey. Uh, there would be an inspections regime to satisfy Russian concerns that these grain shipments, the Ukraine could use these grain shipments as cover uh, for military operations or, or uh, you know, something of that nature. Uh, so it does sound like they made some progress. How much and, and whether it's going to be enough to get a deal done uh, remains to be seen. But it seems like there's actually been movement on something for the first time in a while. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a real movement on one of the major kind of international repercussions of, of Russia's invasion. So, yeah, potentially good news. I, I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll have to wait and see next week if, if a deal is actually signed, but potentially good news. On the ground, um, there hasn't been much movement, but there have been some instances, uh, you know, it's kind of suggesting the next areas where this conflict is going to going to focus. Obviously, in the east, uh, the Russian military is continuing to shell parts of Donetsk province that are Donetsk Oblast that are still in Ukrainian hands. There was word earlier this week that the Russians had, or uh, either Russians or their proxies, the separatist forces, uh, or both, had captured a town, a small town in Donetsk province. It's not clear whether that indicates that the ground, the full ground invasion is uh, is coming anytime soon, but it, um, it may be. Uh, the Russians have been certainly pounding this region with artillery for some time now in preparation, one assumes, for a ground invasion. So that, that assault may begin in fairly short order. Uh, as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, uh, they've been making, Ukrainians have been making a lot of noise about recapturing or trying to recapture Kherson Oblast, which is in southern Ukraine, just north of Crimea. It, it was taken by the Russians shortly after the invasion. Uh, remains in Russian hands. There will probably, barring some unforeseen uh, kind of twist and turn to the story, will probably be annexed by Russia, or at least there will be some political move toward annexation, uh, I would say, maybe later this year. Uh, and the Ukrainians are keen, clearly, to get 
Kherson back. They've been shelling Russian positions in that province. Uh, they've been asking residents to clear out, uh, kind of indicating that uh, an attack is coming. Um, I don't know what timetable they're on. I do know that the Ukrainians have, Ukrainian officials have talked about raising a million strong army for not just retaking Kherson, but, uh, you know, moving back east and maybe trying to retake territory that the Russians have taken there. Uh, this seems like a, a, almost an impossibility to build uh, an army on the fly that big. If you want to have any semblance of training or equipment, that's a really big ask. But this is uh, sort of where the rhetoric is at coming from from Kiev. It's probably meant more to kind of boost national morale and to keep Western governments sort of in the fight, sending weapons, trying to, to bluster their way through what I think has been, uh, by all accounts, a fairly difficult couple of weeks. Thank you for that update, Derek. And I'm going to start using speaking of news as my new my new transition. So speaking of news, <laughs> there's been a lot of movement in uh, Sri Lanka. Um, everyone probably saw the viral photos of people storming the presidential palace. But uh, what happened uh, in the aftermath of that, Derek? So uh, there was a protest that was planned for Saturday in, in Colombo uh, to reiterate calls for the resignation of President Gotabaya Rajapaksa uh, and Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe over Sri Lanka's economic collapse, basically. These, these protests have been going on for weeks now. Uh, the country is uh, essentially out of fuel, out of money. Uh, people are struggling to get food. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, resentment that has built up. Sri Lankan political parties are trying to figure out a way to pacify all this anger, but it's uh, it's proving to be very difficult. The protests on Saturday were apparently so massive and they did break into, as you saw the, the photos in the video, the official prime ministerial residence and the official presidential residence in Colombo. Rick Remesinga announced that he was prepared to resign uh, in favor of what he would what's being called an all-party government, basically a national unity government. Uh, that did not stem the protests. Uh, and finally, sort of, you know, in the you know, midday on Saturday, I think about roughly midday, uh, Rajapaksa announced that he would resign, uh, which has been the big demand uh, of the protesters for several weeks now. He announced that he would resign as of Wednesday. Uh, on Wednesday morning, he fled the country, probably to uh, get out of there before he lost his legal immunity that he had from uh, being president. Uh, he went first to the Maldives and then on to Singapore. There was some question about whether or not he had actually handed in a resignation letter. Turns out that he hadn't, uh, which could have seriously gummed things up. But it seems that he's now emailed and sent a resignation letter back to Sri Lanka from Singapore. And so uh, that the announcement of his official resignation, I think, is going to be made uh, Friday morning in Sri Lanka. Uh, that clears the way for parliament to elect a new president. In the interim, Vikramasinghe actually becomes acting president, which uh, doesn't seem to have gone over very well among the, with the protesters. But parliament has said it will elect a new president next week. We'll have to wait and see who that is. Uh, meanwhile, this all-party government, there are negotiations ongoing about establishing that. They seem to be maybe not going uh, so well. I'm not sure how much progress has actually been made. But things are, are certainly in, in somewhat of a, a state of limbo 
politically with Vikramasinghe in charge, but I think lacking any sort of substantial mandate to do anything. Uh, he has declared a state of emergency. He's characterized some elements among the protesters as a, quote, fascist threat, which may indicate that there's some violence on the horizon here. But we'll have to wait and see. Uh, in terms of implications here, I mean, the Rajapaksa family has been dominating Sri Lankan politics for many years now, going all the way back to the end of the Civil War. So uh, this is a, a pretty big fall from grace and will shake up Sri Lankan politics quite a bit. Uh, the Rajapaksas were somewhat friendlier with China. Uh, then with India, China and India are sort of the two big uh, regional powers, at least, that, that kind of uh, play for, for influence in Sri Lanka. So this may shift Sri Lankan politics a little bit in India's direction. The Indian government, I should say, has been sort of throwing lines of credit and, and other sorts of aid at Sri Lanka during this economic crisis. So I think New Delhi sees a, a chance to kind of regain some influence here. Yeah, it's an opening for them. Hey everyone, it's Jake. Just a couple of quick plugs. First, our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. You can go sign up for the free list and also sign up for our free two-week trial for our bonus content, where you can go through the archive, check out our series, take part in discussion threads, and lots of more cool stuff. I also want to plug another podcast, Ones and Twos, with one Adam Twos. He's a foreign policy columnist, history professor, and popular author. He's got this encyclopedic knowledge about stuff from COVID, climate change, to weird food recipes. So you can join him along with foreign policy editor Cameron Abadi as they unpack two numbers each week, one from the headlines and the other from way off the news. So search ones and twos, T-O-O-Z-E on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. And let's stay in the broad Pacific and move over to the Pacific Islands Forum, which was attended by Vice President Kamala Harris. So, Derek, what do our listeners need to know? So the forum, this year's forum, which is being held uh, in Fiji, uh, was marred by the uh, abrupt uh, resignation, basically, of Kiribati from the PIF uh, right before the session began. There's some internal dynamics here at play. The Kiribatians are angry over what they perceive as the uh, as a sort of discrimination against the Micronesian faction within the PIF, and so they're they're unhappy with that, and that's uh, seems to be at the root of their their decision to quit the forum. Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, excuse me, Vice President, U.S. Vice President, did make a virtual appearance at the forum on Wednesday. She announced a new six hundred million dollar funding initiative, six hundred million dollars over ten years, that would uh, be used for different projects, things that uh, managing climate change, maritime security countering illegal fishing in the region, so a variety of, uh, of things, assuming that this program gets uh, congressional approval. She also announced plans to open U.S. embassies in Kiribati and Tonga. That goes along with the Biden administration's plans, which they announced earlier this year, to reopen the previously closed U.S. embassy in the Solomon Islands. Uh, so it's all part of a kind of blitz to try and integrate the United States into the South Pacific and counter uh, what I think people in Washington view as a, a, an increasing Chinese presence in that region. So, um, you know, just part of the the glorious new Cold War, I guess. Right. Uh, the, the further, the pivot to Asia. 
the eternal yeah. pivot to Asia. It keeps it keeps on keeping on. Uh, so exactly. Why, uh, so why don't we move over to the Middle East and talk about the UN Security Council and Syria? Yes. So the uh, Security Council had been debating ahead of uh, what was supposed to have been the deadline uh, on Sunday, the renewal of its cross-border humanitarian relief effort uh, running from southern Turkey into rebel-held, uh, well, Turkish and rebel-held northwestern Syria. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands, probably about two, close to two and a half million, I think, people uh, who depend on aid from that through that corridor to to survive refugees or displaced Syrians from other parts of the country in particular. Russian delegation, the Russian government had been threatening to veto a 12-month uh, renewal of that relief effort, of that operation. Uh, they weren't demanding a six-month renewal. Uh, this led to a situation on Friday where the Russians veto, did veto the, a resolution that would have extended the, the operation for 12 months and then proposed their own alternative six-month extension that only got like two votes, I think, uh, Russia and China. So that was defeated as well. This meant that, you know, as of Sunday, the operation was over. It, it would expire and, and there would be no renewal. The Security Council managed to put together a compromise on Monday that was then that the council then finally approved on Tuesday. Uh, it seems like less of a compromise than just sort of a capitulation to Russia's demand. The new quote unquote compromise resolution called for a six month extension as the Russians wanted. It requires Guterres, the secretary general, to make briefings every two months. Uh, to the Security Council on the status of Syrian recovery and of efforts to expand alternative relief operations that go not from Turkey into northwestern Syria, but that go through Damascus and are managed basically by uh, the Syrian government, which creates a, you know political concerns and, and uh, uh, potentially logistical issues that need to be worked out. There is an option for the Security Council to vote in January to extend this Turkish corridor for another six months, but I think the up shot is what the Russians are demanding is a shift from, you know, aid primarily flowing through Turkey to aid primarily flowing through Damascus through the Assad government uh, before they would even consider allowing that extension, another six-month extension to go through. They really want to transition away from this cross-border business and and, uh, shift to an intra-Syrian solution. Very interesting. And why don't we actually stay in the Middle East and talk about President Joseph Robinet Biden's visit to the region and what what has he done? What is our, what is our glorious president promised? What uh, <laughs> what speeches has he given? <laughs> so uh, Biden arrived in Israel on Wednesday uh, on his big Middle East trip that's so popular that the administration decided it needed to put an op-ed in the Washington Post last weekend to justify it. Polling indicates that people are not terribly thrilled with Biden making this trip or the reasons that he's making it. He, he sort of did the, the sort of preliminary formal parts of the, the visit on Wednesday, met with 
Isaac Herzog and Yair Lapid, uh, the Israeli president and prime minister, respectively, you know, with the press there sort of discussing generally the wonderful relationship with the United between the United States and Israel and our shared values, which I always laugh at because that doesn't speak very well to the value systems of either country, frankly. And the, you know, the bone deep, Biden used the phrase bone deep ties between the U.S. and Israel. He was briefed apparently on uh, Israel's various air defense systems, including their brand new iron beam, which uses lasers instead of missile interceptors, uh, is supposed to be able to shoot down basically dummy type weapons as opposed to smart weapons. So things like artillery shells or rockets uh, is supposed to be able to, to down those things uh, with at much lower cost uh, per operation than the Iron Dome, uh, which uses interceptors. He's probably going to talk about it. I don't know if they, I assume they've already had these conversations, but probably talked about this Middle East air defense program, which is something Israeli uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's essentially an Israeli, I think, conceived idea to bring the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, and various Arab, kind of regional Arab state militaries together in something that approximates an anti-Iran and military alliance without all the political negotiations that would go into actually forming direct alliances between Israel and these states, which could be uh, politically fraught for everybody concerned. Uh, essentially, it uses U.S. Central Command as the glue that sticks these various militaries together. Uh, everything runs through CENTCOM, and they can share intelligence, they can share uh, you know, targeting information, supposedly. According to the New York Times, uh, the Israelis shot down two Iranian drones probably over Jordanian uh, or in Jordanian airspace back in March. And, you know, they got intelligence on the, these drones from unspecified Arab states. So this is an example of this program already working. We'll continue to advance Israel's integration into the region, expand emerging forms and engagement like the new I2U2 summit, which will bring Israel, the United States, the UAE together and India as well to deepen our economic cooperation. On Thursday, the second day of his visit, Biden and Lapid unveiled something that we're, I guess, calling the I2U2, which is a new gang uh, of countries that includes Israel and India. They, these are the I2 and the United States and the United Arab Emirates, who are the U2. Uh, I don't know if Bono's getting involved or not. I mean, we just, you know, it's the usual thing. Basically, this looks like they announced a couple of investment initiatives, mostly featuring projects in India. But I think basically what this is, it's for the Israelis in the UAE, it's an anti-Iran alliance, an anti-Iran arrangement, trying to kind of bring India, which has actually a fairly decent relationship with Iran at the moment, but trying to bring India on board their anti-Iran neuroses. For the United States, I think Iran is certainly part of it, but I suspect what they're trying to do, what Biden is trying to do here is create another quad. Uh, you know, if people are familiar with the quadrilateral uh, dialogue in the Pacific uh, with Japan, Australia, India, and the United States, uh, basically this is an anti-China arrangement. And I suspect this is an attempt to do the same thing in the Middle East and to bring India even, you know, further into or kind of try to bring India further into the U.S. diplomatic orbit. 
Well, Derek, thank you as always for knowing literally everything about what's going on in the world so our beautiful listeners could also have a sense of what's going on. And everyone, enjoy our episode this week, which will be a continuation of our series on Afghanistan. And we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.